Good morning, good evening, good night. If you would, open your Bibles up to John chapter 11. Listen, if you're listening to this, then this probably means that you were not here on Sunday. But if you're listening to this sermon and you were here on Sunday, then I feel like I have to give a disclaimer. I am not re-recording this sermon because I called Lazarus, Lazarus, Lazarus. Listen, I have a, it is ingrained in my vocabulary to, to call Lazarus, Lazarus. And I made that blunder all Sunday morning. Um, so for God was very gracious in not allowing that audio to be recorded. And so we're going to re-record it and act like that never happened. Um, this week marks the, the start of a new narrative found within the Gospel of John. And although this is a new narrative found within the Gospel of John, this is a narrative that possesses the same purpose that every other story in the Gospel of John possesses. What is that purpose, you ask? That purpose is that we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that through that belief we have eternal life. John makes it abundantly clear that that is his purpose in writing. Now, two weeks ago, I said that John 9 was my favorite chapter in this gospel. I might have to take that back. John 11 is really good. It might take the crown as my favorite chapter. John 11 is rich with gospel-centered application that we really haven't seen up until this point in John. And it's rich with gospel-centered hope that's been consistent all throughout the gospel of John. And so found in this chapter is arguably the greatest miracle aside from his own personal resurrection performed by Jesus. And spoiler alert, that miracle is the bringing back to life of a dead man named Lazarus. It's a big deal what Jesus does in this chapter. In the first 10 chapters of this gospel, we've seen Jesus continually display his power over the physical aspects of this life. So he's restored sight to the blind, he's healed the paralyzed, he's healed the sick, he's turned water into wine, he's multiplied fish and bread to feed the masses, and he's walked on water. But in this particular miracle in chapter 11, Jesus tells uh, what this miracle does is it tells us that Jesus possesses a power that stretches far beyond the physical and into the eternal. Jesus possesses a power over life and death, which is a power that only belongs to God. Now, aside from this personal resurrection or his personal resurrection, this will be his final sign performed in the public eye recorded in this gospel. And following this miracle, we we'll see that the heat begin to really turn up in regards to Jesus's crucifixion. So where the clouds of persecution began to slowly creep in back in John 5, at the end of John 11, we'll begin to feel the rumblings of thunder and hear the cracklings of lightning off in the distance. The mighty storm of his crucifixion is on the horizon and we're beginning to really see it creep in. The miraculous healing of a dead man will ultimately lead to the death of the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. Now, our plan is to divide this into five weeks, to divide this chapter, chapter 11, up into five weeks. And surprisingly, it won't be until week four that we see the actual resurrection take place. So that means that for three weeks, we're going to be setting up this grand miracle. But let me tell you that these next three weeks will be packed full of rich application. We will have an opportunity to really zoom in on God's love for his people. We'll begin to be able to discuss how we know God loves us. 
We'll discuss God's plan and suffering, how to handle grief, how to counsel a brother or sister who's going through grief themselves. And we'll do this all while constantly reminding ourselves of the gospel. So let's go ahead and dive into this passage. It says this, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Mary or Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So let's pause here for a moment. In these first six verses, I think John goes out of his way to introduce two things. First, I think he goes out of his way to introduce important characters in the story and what's going on in their lives. But secondly, I think he goes out of his way to describe Jesus's relationship with these characters. So let's kind of tease that out for a moment. First, in verse one, we're introduced to a man named Lazarus. Lazarus is from Bethany. And then John tells us that Bethany is the same village that Mary and Martha are from. And then apparently Mary and Martha are sisters. And then apparently Lazarus is the brother to these sisters. So Lazarus, Mary, and Martha are brothers and sisters. In these first two verses, we're introduced to this tight-knit little family. But John also finds it important to allow us to peek behind the curtain of what's going on within the life of this family. We see pretty quickly that things aren't going well for Lazarus. Lazarus is sick. He is ill. He is weak and feeble. He's on the brink of death. But John also makes a point to tell us that he isn't going through this trial alone. We quickly see Lazarus's sisters have invited themselves into the trial that he is walking through at this moment. He's not going through this trial alone. His sisters are making an intentional effort to care for and look after their brother who is sick. So because their brother is sick, they have sent for Jesus. Now, that's an obvious point that's really easy to to breeze past. But I think the example of his sisters here is something worth highlighting. Mary and Martha's care for Lazarus is something we should reflect as believers. Paul, for example, in his letter to Timothy says, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and worse than an unbeliever. So listen, I understand the weightiness of what I'm about to say because we live in a fallen world where oftentimes the people who have hurt us the most are the people who share the same last name as us. But scripture calls us to care for our family. Caring for your family is a tangible mark of a believer. We have a biblical calling to look after and care for our relatives. So caring for your family may look different in every situation, but to those of you who are exhausted from caring for your family, please press on. I pray the Lord blesses you with strength and perseverance. And to those of you who have family in need with no one to care for them, please consider repentance. Look after them. We have a biblical calling to look after and care for our relatives. So it's while Lazarus is ill, it's his sisters who make an intentional effort to care for their brother by sending to Jesus requesting help. So may we, like Mary and Martha, 
love our family well. But it's in these first two verses, John goes out of his way to introduce the characters in the story and what's going on in their lives. But not only does he introduce Lazarus, Mary and Martha and the child they're walking through together, but he also goes out of his way to highlight Jesus's love for his family or for this family. There's four different Marys found within the Gospels. So John in verse two goes out of his way to clarify who this Mary or yeah, who this Mary is. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. And so what's interesting is that this small piece of information is a bit of a spoiler because John doesn't record this act of service until later in chapter 12. And so it's almost like if you turned on Star Wars and you began watching the first episode and the opening words on the screen read, A long time ago in a galaxy far away, Anakin, who will later become Darth Vader, the father of Luke, begins his training to become the next Jedi. Right? This, this information is helpful, sure, but it feels premature. It almost feels like a spoiler. Why is John telling us this bit of information about Mary prematurely? Why does he feel the need to tell us this particular action? Well, in, this, in one aspect, I think he's clarifying which Mary he's talking about. This clarifying statement tells us that this act of service was a widely recognized story. So John anticipates his readers in a sense saying, Oh, okay, that, that Mary, I know who you're talking about now. I'm familiar with that story. But secondly, I think this also helps shine light on what led to this incredible act of service by Mary. So it's following the raising of her brother Lazarus that she anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. But thirdly, and in my mind most importantly, I think he's telling us of the type of relationship Jesus had with this family. This is a family that loved Jesus. And this is a family that Jesus loved. We'll study this in a few months, but the type of service described in verse 2 is unheard of. It's a major sign of humility, service, respect, and love. This is a woman that is a family. This woman and this family is a family that loves Jesus. This is a family that enjoyed a close and intimate relationship with Jesus. They loved Jesus and Jesus loved them. Twice in these first five verses, we see Jesus's love for this family, particularly Lazarus mentioned. So if you see in verse three, the sisters sent to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So, hey, Lord, your beloved friend, the one you that the one that you love and the one that you cherish He's sick. He's ill. Come help. And then John goes out of his way to reiterate this point by saying in verse five, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So to summarize what's going on at this point, it's a man that Jesus deeply loves who is sick. And the sisters of Lazarus have sent to Jesus to let him know of his sickness. Their attempt to send to Jesus is a cry of desperation. Because of their close relationship, you have to think they have to be aware of the power that Jesus possesses. They have to remember the miraculous works of Jesus giving sight to the blind man and healing the invalid man. They have to remember Jesus healing the official son from miles away. So at this point, they're crying out to Jesus from afar. Lord, help the one that you love get better. We know that you are able 
And Jesus hears this plea and he responds in verse 4. He says this, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, as we'll see in a moment, this illness will lead to death. So is Jesus wrong here? No, he's not. Well, I think what Jesus is saying is that this illness will not end in death. Though he will die because of this illness, Jesus will bring him back to life so that God may be glorified. So notice that this is yet another example of Jesus' divine nature. The purpose of this illness is God's glory. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God, Jesus, may be glorified through it. And so God shares no glory with no one. So the glory of the Son is the glory of God. And the glory of God is the glory of the Son. This is yet another claim to the divine nature of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. This is yet another important claim to the divine nature of God. And so Jesus here makes a prophetic statement that death will not have the final say and that he, Jesus, will be glorified through this illness. This is a hopeful proclamation that there is purpose in his suffering. God sits on the throne even in our darkest moments. But then in verse 5, we see one of the strangest progressions in all of Scripture. There's a tension here that I think is meant to be recognized. Up until this point in verse 5, John's gone out of his way to describe the intimate relationship that Jesus has with this family. They love him and he loves them. Then in verse 5, before he moves further into this story, he reiterates this love that Jesus has for this family. Look in verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Lazarus. And it's those that he loves greatly that he cried out to him for help. And he heard their cry. And what does he do when he hears their cry? Well, in verse 4, he says that this illness will not lead to death and that he will be glorified through it. But then what does he do in verse 6? When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So in their cry of desperation, Jesus stays because he has a purpose for their suffering. Let me reread verses 5 and 6. I want us to feel the tension here. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. The word so here links what is about to be said with what was just said. So what does that mean? It means that it is because Jesus loved this family that he stayed where he was. Which means rather than stop what he's doing and immediately return to Bethany, he stays for another weekend. Let's think about that. Listen, I love my family deeply. I love my wife and I love my two kids and I will go to great lengths to ensure that they are safe. In the moment that I sense danger or the moment I hear their cry for help, I will waste no time. I will run to their aid. I will move quickly. Two months ago, for example, we were at small group and my beautiful daughter and yet very clumsy daughter falls down the stairs. 
And the moment that I hear the thud, the thud, 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 down the stairs, and the moment I hear her cry, what do you think this dad does at that moment? He darts to her aid. I sprint to her aid. Hussein Bolt could not beat me at that moment to my daughter. I'm sprinting. We often rush to help those that we love. And I think that John knows this here. I think John presents verses 1 through 5 in such a way that the readers are fully expecting and anticipating Jesus to stop what he's doing and run to the aid of Lazarus. He presents this story in such a way that it leads us to say, if Jesus loved this man, then he would act quickly in delivering him from this trial. But we see the opposite is true here. John tells us that it is because Jesus loved this family that he stays. It is out of love that Jesus waits. So because Jesus loved them, he doesn't answer their request right away. Because he loves them, he allowed them to continue to suffer. Because he loved them, he would rather them see the glory of God displayed through their suffering than rush to grant them healing. Church, listen to me. Do not miss the truth that this passage is telling us here. Prolonged suffering does not negate God's love for you. You may be encountering great trials, and you may have pleaded to the Lord for Him to deliver you from these trials. But please know that the fact that you're continuing to suffer does not mean that God has not heard you, nor does it mean that God is mad at you. What this passage does is it teaches us to not look at our circumstances as a measure of God's love. So how do we know that God loves us? We know that God loves us because of the cross. We know that God loves us because He Himself has entered into this world and suffered for us, laying His life down for us on the cross so that we might have eternal life. And so why do we constantly, week after week, preach the gospel every single Sunday? We do that because the gospel is our only hope. It's the exclamation point to the fact that God loves you. So in your darkest moments of despair, in the midst of the storms of this life, fix your eyes on the cross. Do not look to your circumstances as a measure of God's love. Look to the cross. Cling to it. Prolonged suffering does not negate God's love for you. In fact, when we look to Scripture, we constantly see the opposite is true. It's because God loves us that He uses trials for our good and for His glory. Romans 5, for example, says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in this hope of the glory of God. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So Paul is telling us here that we've been justified by faith in Jesus. Because of what Jesus has done on our behalf, we stand in right standing with God. Because of what Jesus has done on our behalf, we have peace with God and we now have an eternal hope in Him. But then Paul goes on to say in Romans 5, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given 
to us. So Paul's directing our eyes past our current circumstances onto God's love for us that has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. God is using our suffering for our good and for his glory. Therefore, we don't have to get discouraged whenever suffering is prolonged in our life. Rather, we can rejoice in our prolonged suffering because we know that God loves us and that he's using our suffering for our good. James continues that thought by saying, count it all joy, my brothers, when, when what, when life is good? No, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So this tells us that the hope of the gospel is not a prosperous life in which we never encounter trials. No, the hope of the gospel is that trials don't end in death. The hope of the gospel is that though we encounter trials in this life, we know that we have an eternal hope that is secure in Christ Jesus. Although we go through many trials in this life, we know that God is using these trials for our good and for his glory. So listen to me. Are you going through a trial right now? Have you pleaded to the Lord for deliverance, but yet it feels like God hasn't heard your prayer? Are you discouraged and feel like God doesn't love you? My prayer is that this passage comforts you greatly. It is because Jesus loved Lazarus that he did not respond immediately. Prolonged suffering does not negate God's love for you. So that means we're not to look to our circumstances as a measure of God's love for us. We're to look to the cross as the measure of God's love for us. Jesus' willingness to lay his life down for his sheep is the greatest display of God's love for his people. Now, that truth doesn't remove the pain of your suffering. I understand that. But it should offer you comfort. It should offer you peace. And it should offer you joy in the midst of pain and in the midst of suffering. Church, you are loved by God and nothing can separate you from that love. Because Jesus loved this family, he stayed two more days. This is an act of this act of staying will be important for us later on in the chapter because we'll see that Lazarus was in the tomb for 4 days, which means there's zero doubt concerning whether or not Lazarus was dead. Upon Jesus's arrival, he's this man's deader than dead. He's he's dead for sure. So Jesus arrived earlier, had Jesus arrived earlier and healed this man immediately upon arrival, folks wouldn't believe that he was actually dead. They would believe that this was more of a resuscitation as opposed to a resurrection. But that's not the case at all. This is a man who was dead in the tomb for four days that Jesus will bring back to life. So now in verse seven, we see Jesus decides to pack up his bag and head to their aid. Look at verse 7. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And if you're not good at geography like myself and you're wondering why Jesus is going to Judea and not Bethany, then it may be helpful for me to point out that Bethany is in Judea. And also Jerusalem is in Judea. In fact, John makes a point to tell us in verse 18 that Bethany is about two miles away from Jerusalem. Why is that important? That's important because Jerusalem is where Jesus left at the end of John chapter 10 because the Jews were seeking to kill him. We therefore shouldn't be surprised by his disciples' response in verse 8, where they say, Rabbi, 
the Jews were just now seeking to, to stone you. And are you going there again? So they're essentially saying, Jesus, this is a dead wish. Why return to the place where the crowd was seeking to kill you? This makes no sense to the disciples. And Jesus responds with one of the strangest answers in verses 9 through 10. Jesus answered them. He said this, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Listen, when I first read this, I remember thinking, what in the world does this have to do with Jesus going to Bethany? As I wrestled through this proverb spoken by Jesus and consulted many different commentaries, I found John MacArthur's explanation really helpful. This man sought to explain this proverb by pointing out the fact that the light of day is immovable. And so no matter how hard we try with daylight savings, you cannot lengthen the daylight, nor can you shorten it. It is what it is, and it's fixed by God. Well, in the same way that the hours of this day are determined by God, so too is the life of Jesus. So too is our life. The Jews who are seeking to kill this man, or who are seeking to kill Jesus, cannot shorten his life. And his disciples who are trying to preserve his life cannot lengthen it. The number of days, hours, and minutes of Jesus' life are predetermined by God, and nothing can change that. Therefore, Jesus is going to walk in obedience to the Father's will. He will not walk in darkness. He's going to walk in the light. And in doing so, he will not stumble. A day cannot finish before it's ordained in. And nor can Jesus' life. And nor can our life, for that matter. Avoiding Bethany out of fear of the Jews will not lengthen his life. Being bold in the face of enemies will not shorten it. It is better to walk in obedience to the Lord in what appears to be danger than to walk in disobedience to the Lord into what appears to be safety. So following this, Jesus says, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. So here Jesus tells his disciples his intention for returning to Bethany. Jesus is returning to do the miraculous. He's returning to do something that only God can do. He's returning to wake up Lazarus. But the disciples are oblivious to this point. They're still set on not going. They say to him, Lord, if he's falling asleep, he'll recover. And so they're missing the point. Jesus, if this man's snoozing, he'll wake up himself. He'll recover from his sickness without you. Let the man sleep. Let's stay here in safety. Well, John then gives us, the readers, a clarifying statement in verse 13. He's saying it's not, Laz- it's not that Lazarus is sleeping. That man's dead. And he says, now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. And so therefore, Jesus clarifies his original statement. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe but let us go to him. So here Jesus goes from speaking in this eloquent, proverbial manner to speaking in a point-blank, blunt manner. Guys, he's dead. I'm going to wake a man up who is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there to heal his sickness. So the illness, the death, and the resurrection of Lazarus, all of that has purpose. And that purpose is to bring glory to God by glorifying the Son, which will ultimately lead to their belief. 
And at the conclusion of John 11, there should be no doubt that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the one who possesses the power to give eternal life. Jesus doesn't just possess power and authority over life, but he possesses power and authority over death. He's not just one who can multiply a little kid's lunchable and feed the crowd. He is the one who can call dead men to life. And the resurrection of Lazarus is intended to point forward to the resurrection of Jesus and forward to our own spiritual resurrection. There's great benefit in this miracle. But following this, Thomas turns to his peers and says, So Thomas called to the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. So they're fully anticipating this not to go well. They're thinking this is a suicide mission. Let's just go and die with him. Now we'll, we'll spend a little more time teasing that out next week. Um, so let's kind of recap what we've learned up until this point. What we've seen here in this passage today is that because Jesus loved this man, he allowed him to die. He does this purposefully. He allows those that he loves to suffer so that they may better see and know the glory of God. And once this man is dead, Jesus makes the decision to return to Judea to bring him back to life, to resurrect him. And in doing so, we will see at the conclusion of this chapter, the Jews will begin their plot to kill Jesus. So in a very real sense, the healing of Lazarus will lead to his own personal death. Jesus laid down his life so that not just Lazarus will experience life, but that all who are dead in their sins might be brought to life in Christ through faith in him. If your faith resides in Jesus, then you have been brought to life because of his willingness to lay down his own life and take it up again. If your faith resides in Jesus, then your life won't end in death either. We've been given eternal life in Christ Jesus. Though you will taste death one day, death will simply be a doorway to the very thing we long for as Christians. We will be with our Savior for all eternity. With Him, there will be no more tears, there will be no more pain, there will be no more death. And so church, cling to this hope in the midst of suffering. We serve a risen King who loves us deeply. And how do we know that He loves us deeply? We know that he loves us, not because of our circumstances, but because of the cross. The absence of suffering is not a proof of God's love. Rather, the proof of God's love is the fact that God entered into this world to suffer for us. All throughout scripture, we see that God uses pain and suffering for the advancement of his glory and for the good of his people. Yesterday, as I reflected back on this truth, I was reminded of the book of Ruth, a very tangible example of this truth. In the book of Ruth, we see that it's through the pain and suffering of Naomi, the pain and suffering of Ruth, the, losing, the, the loss of their husbands, the encountering of famines, that we ultimately see God lead Ruth to Boaz. We see Boaz marry Ruth, and it's through their children that the Redeemer of the world, Jesus, was born. So as we close today, I want to read this quote. It says this, Our natural response is to rebel against our trials and suffering as alien intruders. 
which must be expelled from our lives as quickly and painlessly as possible by every means available, including God's miraculous intervention. With hindsight, however, another perspective is possible. We can offer our trials to God for Him either to remove or retain as He pleases, thereby bringing glory to His name and deepening our faith and possibly that of others too. So church, it's good to plead to the Lord for Him to remove our sufferings. We see Paul do it. May we be a people who pray fervently for God to remove trials. But in our pleading, may we offer our trials to God, trusting that He is good and that He loves us. He is a God who can remove or retain as He pleases. So we can pray this way because we know that prolonged suffering does not negate God's love for us. Church, I love you guys, and I will see you again on Sunday.